0: Welcome again to Language Made Difficult, a wholesome part of the Specgram podcast. I'm your host, David Peterson. Back again with me in the equipment closet of the John Wilkins conference room is occasional Wikipedia editor, Trey Jones. Hey, everybody. To his left is amateur enthusiast enthusiast, Keith Slater. Great to be with you guys. And joining us live via satellite from the lobby of the Great Northern in Twin Peaks, Washington, Bill Sproul. Hey. Thanks for joining us. To kick things off, let's hear some more lies. Oh,
1: just a second, David, I just, got a, I just got a message on the monitor here from Fred in the booth, oh. uh, and he wants us to know that the Comptroller General is just
0: coming in. Wait, the? The, the, the comp-
1: Comptroller General, oh. yes.
0: Oh, what, oh my goodness, there uh, there she is. Uh, he, uh, hello, Ms. Ms, uh, Ms, uh, Ms uh, comptroller General, sir, uh, ma- uh, ma'am, uh, how may we uh, help you today?
2: I'm here to evaluate the cost-effectiveness of this podcast and decide whether or not to continue funding it.
0: Oh oh oh! <laughs> well, what a what a wonderful what a wonderful idea! I honestly now couldn't that's, be. That's happy a good about idea that. there. Yeah yeah yeah. Uh, well, uh, hey, why not uh, join us for our um, our most popular segment, uh, Lies, Damn Lies, and Linguistics? We were we were about to do it. Uh, its Q rating is uh, through the roof with uh, all our key demos and mm-hmm. everything. Uh, what do you think?
2: Well, I was very disappointed last time to hear reports of more than ninety seconds of outtakes at the end of the last podcast. You need to try harder to get it right on the first take. I, do you have any idea of how much this recording studio costs per minute?
0: I, uh, I, don't, I don't have a good idea, but I, I promise that we'll do better in the future. Right, guys? We'll
3: yeah? Yeah, try. We will. And, and I would point out that you could save some money by not sending me all over the planet. Just an idea. That I, would I'd work.
2: rather thought it was your idea to go to all those obscure places, Sproul.
3: No, that's Athanasius' idea. He keeps putting me down on the duty roster.
2: We were considering in the accounting group commandeering your frequent flyer miles to cover travel expenses for our next quarterly meeting, which, for tax reasons, needs to be an off-site meeting in Hawaii.
3: That sounds good. Send Athanasias. Well, I'll
2: go. I'll go. So I had another question, too. Why are your coffee mugs so big? Our investors paid for that free coffee, you know, and you seem to keep spilling it on Slater here. (laughs)
4: <laughs> yeah, yeah. We haven't, why does that happen? We haven't done that for several podcasts.
2: <laughs> well,
0: look, I, I promise we will all try to be much more careful with the generous coffee that, that you give to us and allow us to, to drink and, and to spill on key. <clears throat> um, I other. think. I, 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 yeah, I or, or anybody else. Yes. We just, we, listen, we can spill that coffee on anybody that you want us to. Do uh, you just tell us the name and consider the coffee spilled upon them,
2: their lap, or person? I'd, I'd feel better if you just drank the coffee that you wanted to drink and skip the spilling piece. But anyway, it appears to be efficient means of evaluating your program. If I stay for one segment of it, so I accept.
4: Oh, fantastic!
0: Uh, all right then. Well, uh, Trey, you you want to go ahead and sure. take it away? Sure.
4: Uh, I've got three language related items. Two are true. One is false. Uh, you all have to figure out which is which. And after you make your guesses, we'll discuss. We've been keeping scores so far and Bill's gotten four out of six. Keith and David are tied at three out of six. And the communal score for our guests is currently one out of one. Since we have our, our guest, uh, Ms. Whitford here, would you like to go first, last, in the middle?
2: I believe I can best evaluate the quality of your answers and wittiness of your repartee if I go last. Proceed.
4: Okay, we'll do that. Here are three items. Our, our theme today is sometimes language names are given by unfriendly neighbors. So mm. item number one, the name Olch means flatulent and was given to them by the Nivix, their neighbors in Russia, based on the Ulchi's traditional diet of beans. Number two, the name Eskimo means speaking a foreign language in several Algonquian languages. Number three, uh, Nahuatl speakers in Mexico are particularly cruel. They gave us Otomi, meaning barbarian, Chontal, meaning foreigner, and Populuka, meaning to babble. Who wants to go first? Um, Keith wants to go first. I
1: could go first. I could go first, certainly. Let's see the first one Ulch could could mean flat. I'm really thinking that uh, it's more likely to mean something like belch, which uh, would be true about the diet of beans possibly, but uh, well, let me come back to that. Now, Eskimo, it's well documented that the word Eskimo means snow. Yeah, so that one looks like it might be false too. Okay, the third one, Nahuatl speakers are particularly cruel. They gave us Otomi barbarian, and yeah, I think that one's probably true. So I think I'm going to have to go with Eskimo because it's it's so, um, so well documented that the word Eskimo means snow.
4: Okay, uh, David? All right, so
0: I actually do want to win this thing because whatever prize there is, and there had better be a prize, I certainly want it. So here, here are my thoughts for the time being first Eskimo. I was pretty sure. I was pretty sure came from French. And furthermore, if it really means, what what was it supposed to mean exactly in the Algonquian languages?
4: Speaking a foreign language. Speaking
0: a foreign language. No, I just can't see that. There's no. There's none of the morphology in there here's what you what you said about the first one and i've looked this up on wikipedia so i know it to be absolute fact if you consist uh, or if you uh if you persist or if you eat primarily a diet of beans eventually your flatulence goes away and in fact it can improve your overall digestion and make you less flatulent and your flatulence that which occurs less odiferous shall we say so to differ from mr slater I'm gonna say that the first one is false, and uh, oh darn it! Oh oh, I need to say something. witty. Um, uh, how uh, how many um how many Eskimos does it take to find the bathroom?
4: I don't know how many.
0: Uh oh 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 darn it! Um, wait wait, I I've got this. Um, okay, let's say seven because oh that was great. Uh, can you uh, Bill? to me, <laughs> Bill? Uh. <laughs> On the first one,
3: I'm a little suspicious because I think the NIFs, if if they in fact call their neighbors Ulch, I think it's probably simply because they thought the Soviet government would be angry if they did not give them names full of Africans, you know. That, that being the traditional thing to do. The name Eskimo, meaning speaking in a foreign language, something's bothering me about that, and I can't pin it down. I think it's because I remember reading Eskimo meant something else, although not snow. Number three, I'm willing to believe, even though there are not any... <laughs> on the end of any of those words. I think, you know, they they probably originally had them and the Spanish (laughs) dropped them off or something. So I'm going to say number one is the one that's false.
4: Okay, Ms. Whitford.
2: Hmm. It would be optimally cost-effective if the first one were false.
4: Okay. It turns out that the first one is, in fact, false. I just made that one up.
2: No way. No way.
4: Yep. Um,
2: I can't believe you chose the second one, later. Do they teach any critical thinking skills in linguistics programs? Well, not the one I went to. I see. <laughs>
4: So it turns out that uh, Eskimo does in fact mean speaking a foreign language. I think the the myth that Bill may have been referring to is that Eskimo means eaters of raw meat, which is one that has been around for a long time.
1: Was the snow thing a hoax?
4: <laughs> yes, there was in fact a great Eskimo vocabulary hoax.
0: And it is in Algonquian that it means speaking a foreign language? Apparently, yeah.
4: All right. According to well, my source. What is
3: not usually known is that snow has over 50 words for a nut to tut. Can <laughs> 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 you pronounce any of them, Bill?
4: Well, no, I'm not crystalline, water-based life form. (laughs) (laughs) I think we're done with uh, Lies, Damn Lies, and Linguistics. Uh, Ms. Whitford, thank you for joining us.
2: I do have a question for you language nerds. Can one of you explain to me why the word is pronounced controller but spelled comp-troller? I
0: think I can answer that, Uh, and the answer is that it's not. And anybody who tells you that it is pronounced that way is clearly a lexicalist and should be reported to the proper authorities. Hmm.
3: There were extra... Extra m's and p's left over at the end of one of the phoneme purchase cycles and if they didn't get used they get cut out of the budget the next year <laughs> uh,
4: i believe the actual answer is that it's just a horrible mishmash of french and middle english and that david is wrong as usual and the correct yeah. pronunciation is controller
0: if i pronounce it that way how could it possibly be false how
4: I don't know how did you uh, pronounce the answers to all those previous episodes of Lies, Damn Lies, and Linguistics, and they were false. I, I, mm. Hey, I'm
0: doing I'm doing pretty good now. I want let the record show. I'm in second place, in a strong second. <laughs> <laughs>
4: Only in total answers. The guests are in first place w- with 100%. Uh,
0: oh, I suppose so. And, the guests and you, are in and, first place. Hmm. Yeah, and you raise a good point. You you did a magnificent job, uh, Ms. Ms. Whitford. Thank you uh, so much for gracing us with, with your presence. Uh, what a wonderful treat it's been.
1: I think we should have her come back.
0: Yeah,
2: yeah. You may not report directly to me, but your boss's boss is my boss. That means I see command you, so keep yourselves in line here.
0: <laughs> oh, yeah, yes, ma'am. We yes, We will. will. (laughs) All right. Well, uh, thanks so much to Miss Whitford. What a a delicious surprise. And um, now we are going to have a word from our sponsor. Language Made Difficult is brought to you by People for the Ethical Treatment of Functionalists. Functionalists. Without
1: your help, they don't know what anything means.
0: All right, we're back. Now for some language news. Hey, ever heard of the Ayapeniko language? Yeah, me neither. But don't worry. Pretty soon it won't matter because it's on its way out. Uh, and we've all got a front row seat. Now, it's not unheard of for linguists to witness the death of a language's last few speakers. But this situation is quite unique. There are exactly two fluent Ayapeneco speakers left, both alive and well, living in Mexico. But they adamantly refuse to speak to one another. Uh, according to a report, they have never really enjoyed each other's company. Uh, So, Trey, which are you, Team Manuel or Team Isidro?
4: I think they're actually both on the same team because this is clearly a linguistic suicide pact. Mm. Using the powerful but subtle method of mathematical induction, which allows linguists to take a single example of almost anything and extrapolate wildly in any direction, uh, it becomes clear that these last two speakers are the remnants of a linguistic death cult. Mm. And that plus linguistic Mm. death cult is a likely important feature of universal grammar. You should compare this to the uh, recently reported on language featured in Specgram in mid-August of 2010, which uh, exhibits certain linguocultural features that make it mind-numbingly difficult to acquire non-natively. Now we have this strong uh, inductive evidence that Iaponeko is plus linguistic death cult, making it more difficult to transmit from one generation to the next. These UG features, feature settings are very rare and are probably going to become extinct before too long. So we need to study them now so that we can apply the principles of evolutionary psychology Ecology, which is even more powerful than mathematical induction, and postulate biosocial cultural pressures that made these features adaptive for these cultures. Uh, doing that, we see, obviously, the Ayaponeco language developed in a biosociolingual cultural environment that favored silence, or at least reticence. Perhaps there were very large predators with excellent hearing in the vicinity, or maybe the constant danger of avalanches, or perchance an abundance of cranky grandmothers with metal spoons that would brook no foolishness from boisterous children. Anyway, unraveling these <laughs> mysteries could lead us to the ayapaneco Urheim, which I can already predict will be either Basque Country or Atlantis. So we need to immediately dispatch large teams of linguistic anthropologists to the area and have them listen to these two men not speaking so that we can gain further insights and generate a large number of unfalsifiable but publishable theories.
0: <laughs> well, all right. You seem to have gotten things worked out, and that's uh, that's pretty exciting. So I have a different theory about this, though.
3: If you'll notice, okay. this kind of scenario where you got these two speakers of the language and they sit there kind of awkwardly looking at each other, not saying anything, is exactly the situation that we produce all across the country in foreign language classes. Hmm. And so I think they're actually trying to be helpful. I think probably this is how they were taught Spanish, potentially in a class where eventually you have now it's dialogue time and then pairs of people sit there looking awkwardly at each other and their silence and they drew the rather reasonable conclusion that if you're trying to help somebody learn a language then maybe this helps somehow and so when the linguists show up they simply recreate it for them.
4: I think all you've done is demonstrate that foreign language classes are also plus linguistic death cult.
3: Ah. <laughs> that would explain a lot.
1: Frankly. I think both you guys are are sort of on the wrong track. I mean, uh, this does seem to be uh, deliberate behavior, kind of like Trey was suggesting, but I I think that something much more deeply interesting is going on here. I'm going to bet that one of these two has a granddaughter who's writing a PhD dissertation on the philosophy of language, and she is paying them to do this, because what she has created here is proof that a language is a set of potential sentences that are totally unconnected with the performance of any actual utterance. What she's got here is a language which is only competence and has no performance. There, There's a dissertation right there.
0: All right, just for a mm-hmm. second, can you, you guys look at this from a marketing perspective? <laughs> Here's what I think. These two speakers, uh, Manuel and Isidro, they have a commodity that nobody else on earth has. Could it be that they're just holding out for money? Uh, I mean, after all, what, these linguists are probably coming to them saying, oh, here, you know, speak your language and we'll, we'll put it in a dictionary. But, Uh, you know, there's not a lot of cash behind that. I I think they figure that the longer they hold out, the closer they're going to get to that payoff, that huge jackpot that, you know, all of us linguists, uh, you know, those connected with the linguistics community uh, have access to. I mean, we don't like to talk about it. You're talking about the documentary
1: linguists, right? You're talking about the documentary (laughs) linguist payoff, right? Right.
0: (laughs) For actual conversation. (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> so here's here's what I think though. If we really want them speaking, I think it could be possible to trick them into it. And here's here's how I think it would work. All right. So I don't mean to generalize, but a lot of older folks are not quite as familiar with the internet as others, as younger folk are. So what I think is you get them both hooked up to like uh, AOL Instant Messenger or something like that. And you tell them, we have found in a remote village somebody else who speaks Ayapaneco, but he's kind of, uh, he's kind of a trickster and he likes to pretend to be the other guy that you don't like so much. <laughs> and then, you know, you just get them chatting to this, uh, to this fake third person and really they're chatting with each other. And, you know, I, I imagine, of course, they'd have to figure out typing and perhaps an orthography for their language. Then basically they're doing linguist work for us and we just have to hit the print button
4: at the end of it. That just might work. That seems a little yeah. unethical, though, because then you're going to be stealing that big payday from them, the linguists who do this.
0: No, no, absolutely. No, is not the point. Oh, okay. Yeah. no. no. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, come on. If you see somebody trying to earn a buck, then you have two responsibilities. One, to prevent them from earning that dollar, and second, to get that dollar yourself. At least that was the first thing that I learned in Linguistics 101. Uh, I, was it a different lesson in your classes? If you're interested in Iapineco, it would probably be best to look it up under its real name, Numteote, and I will not spell that for you. Up next, magical robotic men have developed the ability to converse with one another. A team of crackpot scientists have modified a couple of Roombas to fumble around room and to give a name to their present location. By sharing the name of their location with each other, the robot's language expands. And in this way, the robots can talk to one another in a brand new language, one which is capable of describing areas of vacuumed floor. Um, This is exciting, but I must raise the question, how close are we human? beings to being replaced by microwaves and automatic teller machine machines. I mean, are we pretty much on the way out?
1: I think that we are. This research is pretty exciting. You know, the researchers reported that after several hundred repetitions of their kind of interactions that developed their language, the robots were able to agree on directions within 10 degrees and distances Mm. within 0.375 meters. I can tell you from experience that that is better than most couples can do using a map together. And I think that (laughs) this shows that robots, they've really, they've replaced us functionally.
4: Oh boy. That
0: actually is pretty incredible.
4: <laughs> so, would it be better just to marry a robot then, if you want to stay in the game?
0: Uh, if, they would ha- if they
4: would have us, right. uh,
1: Well, there's there's no indication here that of what robots would do paired up with humans. It's only robots together, so you might not get you know your results might not be as good.
0: Eventually, uh, of course, if, if the robots, they just keep going on like this, we could be faced with a situation you know, as we try to study their language where the robots themselves figure out what we're doing and then they refuse to speak to one another. Uh, and pretty <laughs> soon, we're, we're following the dying robot language as well and then we're not going to be stuck with anything at all.
4: And that would be great if we could get a, a robot language that was also plus linguistic death cult.
3: <laughs> and then get so I would, thinking well,
4: I you might not even make it that
3: far because if you'll notice... What the robots did not develop during that time frame while they were mapping out territories was the word mine. (laughs) (laughs) The minute that happens, you're going to start getting little robotic territorial wars. The real danger here is not that they will develop languages that replace ours or that kind of thing. It's that we might end up being collateral damage in territory wars among regional vacuum cleaners, which would just be embarrassing. It's one thing if someone actually puts the effort into designing, like, a giant death robot. It's cliche, but it's still kind of classy at the same time. Getting waxed by a
4: vacuum is just gross. It's one thing to be relegated to the dustbin of history; it's another thing to get put there by a Roomba.
3: Right? Exactly. On steroids. Exactly. And you know, I I suspect this this is another move in the plot by physicists to render linguists um, irrelevant. irrelevant. Uh, Too late. Irrelevant -er. (laughs) or.
4: irrelevant dirt got it but see bill i don't think that's really a, a big concern because the robots didn't come up with any concepts they only came up with labels for the concepts so they don't have the concept of, of possession so at least these robots maybe the next generation of BINGO droids or whatever they're called will do that but right now they don't have those concepts and How so don't we know we have concepts i know i have mm. concepts I, I i'm not so sure the, about some of us i give the rest of you the benefit of the doubt <laughs> I really think we should just take cricket bats to them. I saw the first Star Trek movie. V'ger comes back. It's not good.
0: <laughs> <laughs> okay. So now actually I have an idea. That's really a fascinating point, Bill. I think that we should actually try to have the robots uh, develop an idea of possession. Uh, and this is what you do. So the way that the little experiment worked is, you know, the robots would travel around in an area and then they create a name for a specific area that were by taking a random selection of syllables. So there would be Things like kuzo, kuze, ruze, and things like that, and then they'd uh, trade them back back and forth. Uh, thank you, Spec Cat. What my idea is is give them something else. So you have the two robots, and they're they're both choosing from the same set of syllables, right? But then have them attach, like, say, the first one attaches a coda D to the end of all words, and the second one attaches a coda B to the end of all words. And then have them travel to one another's areas. And the first time that one of them refers to one area as, say, Z and the other one refers to it as Cozeb, then, finally, we'll have our mech wars. And I can't wait.
4: Apparently we're all waiting.
1: I guess we're waiting. The thing that struck me reading this was uh, wondering why these, somebody couldn't program these robots to run back and forth between the two I. up and Echo speakers and settle the feud. <laughs> seems like they might be pretty effective intermediaries. And actually, if they could agree, if they could get those guys to agree within 10% on things, that would be an improvement on the way it goes, on, You know, the way they're interacting now.
0: <laughs> indeed in fact you know i can't prove it but i bet that their argument originated over how best to clean the floor uh and certainly <laughs> the roombas will fix that up in no time no doubt <laughs> uh all right well anyway just so long as the robots don't demand rights i think that we're on a good tack, and i look forward to the future uh next up we have more from the irrepressible lady fan todd but first another word from our sponsor In a world where
4: flapping lips and vibrating uvulas have overtaken the lives of everyday citizens, who will save the common man, the reanimated corpse
0: of Otto Jespersen is the Trill Hunter. All right, we're back. We've got more, Lady Fantod. Bill, you want to introduce us? Well, last week's querent wasn't particularly happy with
3: the answer she got. If you have dealt with Lady Fantod before, you know what to expect. But apparently, she didn't. So we're letting her have another go at asking a question.
2: Dear Lady Fantod, I appreciate your advice, but I really do want to pursue a career as a syntactician. The same group of theorists borrowed another concept from a poster presentation I gave at last year's LSA. What should I do?
3: And now we'll hear from Lady Fantod. Dear,
4: dear, dear, dear. Another foolish young linguist wandering unprotected in the remote regions of the LSA and then being surprised when he's attacked by brigands. Good heavens, child those mountains are simply packed with roving bands of formalist dandies who'll strip a traveller of his theories not to mention his gucci x-balls without
0: mercy let this be a lesson to your And there you have it. Our special thanks to the good lady. I hate cats and catettes, a new craze is sweeping the plains of linguistiana. Scores of graduate students the world over are ankling traditional fieldwork practices in favor of the brand new Slater method of linguistic fieldwork, pioneered by our very own Keith Slater. Keith has graciously agreed to talk to us a little bit about his fieldwork work, so let's have it. Thanks for letting us pick your brain, Keith.
1: Well, you're welcome. It's it's always a pleasure to talk about that stuff that we do, the the real linguistics we spend our time on. The Slater method. It's pretty simple, really. And I'm kind of surprised nobody thought of it before. But uh, basically, I just, uh, I got tired of all those long fieldwork trips that involve, you know, early mornings and late nights and insufficient caffeine. And so I um, I thought, uh, well, why don't we just use Skype? I uh, started doing all my fieldwork by uh, Skype. And, you know, later I branched out a little into, you know, use uh, messenger services. And uh, Facebook works pretty well. And, and I'm finding you just get a tremendous amount of data in a short amount of time. And uh, you can just sit right at home at your comfortable computer desk. I mean, I've had a number of publications in uh, Specgram, of course, and, uh, and a lot of other places, and it seems to really just be uh, a method that people can appreciate.
0: I've always been a big big fan of the of the Slater method but uh, a common criticism that I hear is that you know if you don't actually uh, get face to face with your speaker you don't know for certain uh, you know I mean you know on the one hand that you're getting the real deal that is you know that you're uh, getting accurate representation of the language being studied but also you actually uh, don't know if you're actually speaking to a real speaker of the language how do you how do you combat that claim
1: well you never know that. Anyway, I mean, come on, we've all seen dissertations where good grief, you know, you could tell uh, this student didn't know what they were getting into. They didn't know
4: if this was really the language that that's that that's always a risk. I still think you're going to have Do difficulty you- if you have, say, for example, grammaticalization of spittle. In a language, mm. you're not going to get that with the Slater method.
1: Well, that, that, that may be one of the limitations there. And, of course, you know, there are going to be some limitations. You know, the, there's some great things, though. Like the IRB at our institution has, has said that we don't need to get informed consent anymore because anybody who is gullible enough to use Skype or Facebook, they've tacitly agreed to have any of their conversations used for any purpose. So, um, you know, it's just very convenient. That's got to
3: save hours on paperwork. If you have somebody on the other end of this who's providing language data... What if they're not trained in Unicode or trying to get the IPA symbols in? Some of these languages, I'm guessing you can't just use a standard keyboard for, can you?
1: Well, we don't usually bother to, to type in the actual language. Most of the elicitation can be done through English, and, and the people can usually just tell you about the language in English. So that, that that's not much of a problem.
4: That's true. Linguists often don't really know languages. They just know about languages. So just skip that intermediate step. Yeah. There you
3: go. But when they tell you about the language, what terms are they using? I mean, you're not, like, having speakers of Tibeto-Burman telling you they're using a dative, are you?
1: No, usually they talk about evidentials. Those are very common common in Tibeto-Burman.
0: No, but you know, Bill raises a good point. Often uh, speakers of a language will not know all the grammatical terms for their own language, so I think you might sidestep this by simply Skyping with other linguists or linguist graduate students, or even linguistics undergraduate students who have maybe at least uh, looked at the Wikipedia article for the language that you're doing field work on. And then, uh, you know, your average linguistic undergraduate, they're going to know what a data is, they'll they'll know evidentials, Um, and you can just cut out the middleman right
1: there. Absolutely. Absolutely. Actually, some of my grad students, uh, they love this method, and one of them has added an extra middleman. He used his uh, travel grant to outsource his fieldwork to a call center in Manila.
4: Mm, that's a wise
0: move.
1: It's really effective.
4: That's a good idea. It, that's not really a middleman. That's more of a surrogate. You're actually getting somebody else to do the work. There you go. There that, you go. That's not really a middleman. Right. That's good. So Skyping with, with undergraduates, that's good because you get rid of the native speakers who have a nasty habit of, of giving you messy data and the undergrads or the grad students that you, who've read the Wikipedia articles can give you cleaner data, which is good. I think you can go farther. As we've talked about before, you know, scientists should be happy when, when hard scientists come along and solve problems for them with their superior analytical skills and approaches. Yeah. But similarly, if you go one step beyond that, hard scientists should be grateful when mathematicians solve their problems for them using pure math. Mm. And so I think we should skip Mm. out the, you know, skip another layer there and just come up with some appropriate mathematical models of language, hand everything over to the number crunchers and sit back and wait for the true facts to start rolling in. Mm.
3: But but Mm. how are we ever going to find out if the other languages' categories are not actually matching the ones we've got?
0: Uh, well, that's 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 easy. We can just edit the Wikipedia articles ourselves, and then we'll make sure that they match. But yeah, no, I, I like I like Trey's idea. In fact, we can abstract it even further by, say, taking a couple of Roombas and then modifying them, and we'll call one the uh, linguistic informant and the other one the linguist. And then we can just have them pilot around the room, cleaning our floors and doing our fieldwork for us. Absolutely. Uh, I I'm stunned. I think this is just a wonderful development and, and really just in a matter of months, I think we can actually
4: solve linguistics. I was going to say that exactly that thing that I don't think it's a good thing because I, I was going to say, oh. I think you may have solved linguistics and then we're all out of a job. Oh, I don't think that puts us out of a job.
0: No, no, no. Here's the, here's the thing. This is what we need to do. We've hit on the method, but honestly, uh, who, who listens to this? Nobody. So we need to take this method, use it ourselves, but then say that we're doing something else. So we apply for our grants, for our field work grants and Yeah, say we get uh, $2,000 to travel to Rwanda. We take that money and we just say, you know, go down to the Marriott or something and have a fine old time for a week. In the meanwhile, the the Roombas are doing all the work and then we come back and, uh, you know, and and, and there we have it.
4: It's a good thing the controller's not here anymore because, you know, $2,000 won't cover the alcohol for Bill's flight anywhere. Interesting. (laughs)
0: I'm pretty sure that I said uh, $2,000. No, <laughs> well, the maximum
3: I got was 2000 and that was actually to cover the medical expenses for a reaction to one of those vaccinations.
0: <laughs> well, I mean, if you're getting vaccinations from Walmart, what do you expect?
3: <laughs> you know, there is
1: a reason, by the way, that we have a vested interest in promoting this method because SpecGram owns the copyright to the Slater method.
0: Ooh. That
1: means that we own the rights to the publication of all field work that's undertaken using the method. So it's really in our best interest, and the controller, a comptroller, will agree.
0: That's a
4: very good point.
3: Based on your description of the method, though, wouldn't it just be faster to take a generalized Wikipedia description of the language and just randomize the representations of the morphemes?
0: Hmm.
1: That sounds like an undergrad paper to me.
0: We're going to have to set about creating new languages, or they'll they'll be on to us pretty quick. Well, that's what the Roombas are for. Oh, right, right, right. Of course. (laughs) Why else do we have them? Little robotic (laughs) conlingers.
4: All right. That's probably good because they don't have souls to lose (laughs) to their nasty habit. Break it up, break it up. (laughs)
0: You're always kind to me, and I appreciate that. All right, that's all the time we have on Language Made Difficult. Join us next time when we'll discuss the phonology of sea slugs learning English. These fascinating creatures have shown themselves adept at all kinds of fricatives, but they sure have trouble pronouncing velar stops. Thanks for listening.
3: Oh, we do everything perfectly every time.
0: (laughs) Welcome again to Language Made Difficult, a wholesome part of the (laughs) sped Tip two, language made difficult everything you say will be used against you
2: another word out of you and I'll have you flog like an intern
3: last week's querent wasn't completely satisfied apparently with the answer that... querent? querent is that how you say that
4: querent
0: if it's a word is
3: it, it a word? It
4: is. It is a word. Um, Come
3: I, on. I don't say it.
4: Well, I don't know how, how many R's.
3: It, sir. It's, it's just, just got one.
2: one. That does it. Your next expense report is almost guaranteed to go missing. You can pay for all those back issues of the Journal of Descriptive Sociolinguistics you've been buying on eBay yourself. Why
0: didn't I get those questions soon enough? Because the courier was late. Oh. Oh. <laughs> uh, just a
1: second, guys. Sorry. <laughs> I'll just do it live. I don't know any of these people.
2: Peterson, you need to speak more clearly and correctly. For example, caught and caught are two completely different words. We spend almost $1,500 per episode in post-production trying to clean up that mess you call a dialect so normal people can understand what you are saying. Spruill, Slater, Jones, keep up the acceptable enunciation.
3: Um, yeah. And there is math, and there is much of it, and it is baffling. Lousy math. Never done anything for nobody. Lousy math. Big steaming piles of it. <laughs> <laughs> I'm, not, I'm not going to get in an edit war with an idiot, so... The yeah, fundamental I feel that mathematical try. laws of reality are incorrect. Yeah. What kind of phonetic characteristics would language need to be so damn stupid-sounding no one would speak it?
0: Uh, I am the Khaleesi of the Dothraki. Tu mataste a mi padre. preparate a morir.